the WA Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. Yes, good day. Jessica Hayes with you today. Happy New Year to you. Great to have your company for the first program of 2023 and coming up in the next hour. Have you ever thought about converting your farm machinery away from diesel and over to battery power? Perhaps concerns about horsepower constraints, range or charge might have put you off. Well, soon you'll hear from a man who's converting diesel prime movers to electric and you'll hear why he reckons the economics and logistics can stack up. This, this fallacy of electric vehicles not being able to shift and tow the loads comfortably, it, it's, not, it's not accurate. The, the performance of electric motors is, is far superior to that of a diesel, just through the, through the um, flat torque curve that is in an electric motor. More on that soon, and I'll have the latest on a salmonella contamination scare involving baby cucumbers brought in from South Australia. 19 people from WA impacted by salmonella poisoning. Investigations continuing in both Western and South Australia to try and get to the bottom of how it occurred. That information shortly, though. And, as always, you can be part of the conversation this afternoon by sending me a text. The number is 0448 922 604. It'd be so great to hear from you this afternoon. That number again, 0448 922 Now, first up today, as I mentioned, it's a new year. And for many livestock producers across the state, the future of live sheep trade is front of mind. With thousands of sheep now being drafted for the next shipment early this month, Buyers and farmers in the industry are appealing to the Federal Agriculture Minister, Murray Watt, to rethink his party's intentions to halt the trade. Mark Bennett filed this report. At Richard Cool's family farm near Franklin in the Great Southern, drafting off for the next batch of shippers bound for Kuwait is underway. Four and a half thousand young weathers from his flock of almost 50,000 sheep being selected by Tim O'Mara from Emmanuel Exports. They'll make up part of a shipment of more than 60,000 animals, mostly sourced from growers across the Great Southern, departing Fremantle in early January. It's been part of the Cools' summer turn-off program, stretching back 50 years, an important part of the income for the family enterprise. Obviously with a family business and my father was farming before I was and I still remember the, the day when Emmanuel came out and bought some sheep from us and they, uh, they drafted sheep and that was probably not long after I left school so that would have been about 1972 and they, they bought a, I think probably 500 weathers from us and, remember, and I remember thinking with great pride when the buyer said to my dad, well, John, they're $20 sheep, and I th- we thought all our Christmases would come at once. But half a century on, the trade is facing storm clouds ahead. The number of shippers heading for the Middle East has shrunk dramatically in the last three years as the industry has adapted to new animal welfare regulations. And the market is looking for younger animals. The changes have been huge, um, not just the last couple of years, but prior to that there's been a lot of, lot of changes going on with what uh, is required um, in sourcing and preparing the sheep for each voyage. Tim O'Mara has been buying shippers for 20 years. So they used to look for older, heavier weathers. Uh, they've got now a taste for younger, younger sheep that are um, still in that same sort of condition that they require, so score two or three. Um, but yeah, just better travelling, travelling sheep. 
things are down a little bit at the moment um, compared to what it has been over the last few years. Um, been a bit of a backlog of sheep, uh, <laughs> partly due to the slowness of the ships going around. Um, but yeah, so prices are down a bit this year on what they have been. How do you greet the news then that the Labor Party has said that they will reduce the trade, if not cut it out altogether in their second term of government? Obviously, from my side of things, it's very disappointing because we're um, putting in a lot of effort to make sure that everything's done properly. Um, the statistics sort of go with us on that as well. So, um, yeah, it'd be good if they actually had a had a look at what we were doing and, and realised that we are really putting in the effort to make sure that everything goes, goes well. I think we have well and truly met the welfare requirements. That's not to say they won't be improved in the future. They surely, surely will be. But... As an importing country, if I, if I believe I, I am dealing, I'm meeting all of the welfare requirements, then I'd be very offended, as Indonesia was, when we banned the live export of cattle to Indonesia. For sure, they had some issues and, and, and it should be dealt with. And I believe you, if you solve a problem by trying to resolve what the issues are rather than banning a trade altogether. So I think Indonesia faced massive food security issues when we banned live exports of cattle. And I think the Middle East, the fact that they're still here, in fact they're investing so much in infrastructure to, to facilitate uh, the live export trade, to me is indicative that food security is imperative to them. The trade itself is largely West Australian trade. Is that part of the problem why we're not getting the message through to decision makers in the eastern states? Pretty sure that it is hard to get traction when, you know, when for, for example, the largest part of, the, of sheep tra travelling to the Middle East come from Western Australia and the largest part probably come from this region, the Great Southern. I think, I'm hoping Murray Watt is fair-minded. Mark McGowan certainly gets the picture. I even think Alana McTiernan, in her retiring days, actually understood how important the sheep industry is to Western Australia, and I think she actually mellowed significantly in her approach. So now we've just got to deal with federal Labor. I think Murray Watt, although he's got to toe the, the Labor Party line, I think he's actually a pragmatist, and I think he might, he might let, let us drag it out a bit longer, and then we may have a change of government. Who knows? I, um, I think if the, the, you know, it's all about votes and I think the, the, if it's perceived the electorate doesn't accept live export then I think the issue is that politicians have to vote where the votes are. Hopefully the general public will see the important aspects that live trade bring to the whole of the sheep industry and therefore by default to the whole of, the, of you know, Australia's wealth. Everyone now realises welfare is important, the most important thing in fact and everyone's doing the best they can. Great southern sheep farmer Richard Cool ending that report from Mark Bennett. And I'm told the first ship out of WA will be the Al Messiah. Uh, it's set to carry 60,520 sheep and 178 steers. Now, for context, the WA Agriculture Minister Jackie Jarvis recently told the country how she absolutely supports live sheep exports because, and I quote, it's an important part of the mix. That's the words of Agriculture Minister Jackie Jarvis. But how are you feeling about the conflicting views on this between the state and federal Labor parties? How nervous are you? How are you feeling? You can let me know on the text this afternoon. The number is zero double four eight nine double two six zero four.
13 past 12 on the Country Hour and you're off to the north now where ex-tropical cyclone Ellie is proving to be the gift that just keeps on giving in the north of the state where hundreds of mil- millimetres of rain have fallen over the weekend. Kimberley pastoralist Philip Hams runs GoGo Station just outside of Fitzroy Crossing and he's flooded in at the moment with the Fitzroy River still rising but he says it's making for a cracker wet season. At GoGo itself, since the 28th of December, we've had around about the 300 mils, which is fairly similar to what Fitzroy has had. But there's been a lot more rain up on the top end of the catchment, both on the Margaret and the uh, Fitzroy, and that's certainly pushing a, a lot of water down. Right now, we've got quite a lot of country being flooded out of the Two Mile Creek and out of Blue Bush Creek. There's you know, a serious amount of flooding out there manageable flooding. The helicopter's out there now uh, checking the cattle, but it's going to get higher. What are your expectations, I suppose? How high are you expecting the, the well, river to get? Well, in my mind and in the mind of a few others who've been around here for a while, we're thinking it's going to be an event, something like the 2011 event, where um, there was quite a bit of serious flooding around Fitzroy itself, certainly out along the highway. So I've got a picture in my mind that's going to end up something like that but may well be wrong. But what we've got right now, we've got well over a million megs sitting up at 9 o'clock this morning. We had um, well over a million megs sitting up at Diamond Gorge. We've got another 1.2 million megs sitting up at Mount Carras. And Fitzroy itself, they tell me that the water's up against the uh, bed of the bridge and um, it's 640-odd thousand megs in there now. So that is the best part of 2 million megs coming down and uh, the water the water will have to go sideways. Right, so how do you prepare for that? What are you, what are you expecting there on station? Right now, the helicopter's out there and he's going around checking cattle, opening gates, cutting fences where need be to let cattle um, keep on the high ground. The physical assets of GoGo are well out of flood reach, but that's not the case you know, in communities um, that are around, like Mullinger and others that are in the path of the water. Right, okay. So are you concerned, Phil, about where this flood might get to? As far as go-go goes, no, I'm not over-concerned about that. It will shut the road for a serious amount of time. Our road, or the highway actually, has been shut. This is the third time in just a little less than 12 months. And it's been shut up to date. It's been shut for seven days in the last two occasions. And um, I seriously suspect this one could go on even longer than that. Mm. So you're That's, locked, you're sort of stuck in at the station at the moment? I'm oh, definitely um, stuck in at the station at the moment. <laughs> There's no question about that, <laughs> um, apart from the helicopters operating. Mm. And how do you prepare for that? Have you had to stock up on, on food and, and other goods? Well, we've got to say that we've been well warned. I've got to thank the forecasters who last week were actively forecasting that it was going to be five days of at Fitzroy more than 40 to 80 mils and that was for five days and another two days from 10 to 20 mils so that gives you a bit of a clue that there's some something going to happen and i've got to congratulate those people that they were spot on and so that gives you a fair bit of time to get sorted so how has the wet season been to this point phil compared to other seasons how are you tracking i think the countryside looks brilliant what we had in uh, november we had the best part of 200 mils well, the bulk of december was quite dry uh, but now we've kicked in with another 300 mils on top of that. Um, I get only see the country uh, looking terrific. It's just good. And this last rain has 
here has been quite steady. You, there's not a lot of damage done. And uh, obviously it's been heavier upstream, but uh, here on GoGo it's been quite a fairly relaxed sort of rain. Mm, that's great to hear. How does this compare to previous seasons or how much annual rainfall is normal for, for GoGo at this time of year? Pretty well on target. We sort of like to think that most years going to get somewhere between five, six or six, 650 or something like that in that order. This year is certainly shaping up to be um, exceptional, but it's about, yeah, it's about on average. We haven't got to the 600 yet. How is your outlook for the year ahead now that you've had these pretty decent falls over the past couple of months? I think it's very positive. Uh, I think the country's going to look exceptionally good. The feed when you drive down the highway looks exceptionally good. It's coming along uh, very nicely. Oh, you love to hear that. Kimberley pastoralist Philip Hams from GoGo Station speaking with Steph Sinclair. And as you can imagine, it's all smiles for plenty of pastoralists over the border as well, where the Territory is also benefiting from ex-tropical cyclone Ellie. Michelle Stanley caught up with Michael Johnson, who runs the pastoral operations at AA Co at LaBelle Downs Station, where they've seen well above average rainfall to wrap up 2022. We haven't seen the sun for about 10 days, I don't think. So um, it's been extremely wet, actually, sort of leading up to Christmas. And then we actually seen the sun come out over Christmas Day, which was nice. And then um, it's been raining ever since. So, yeah, some significant rainfall in this area. Yeah. How, how significant in, you know, the hundreds of mils? Oh, yeah, definitely. We're probably averaging sort of 50, 60 mil a day at the moment. Yeah, you know, I think we'd be well up probably over seven, 800 mil for the last 10 days, two weeks. Yeah, right. Well, what does that look like out at the station? A lot of water running around. Um, fortunately, we had some good early rain, so everything was nice and green and actively growing, but a lot of water moving around and big water running across the floodplain at the moment. Is it typical to see that amount of rain over the last couple of weeks of December heading into Jan? No, certainly not. And talking to a few people that have been around for a while, they said it's quite significant compared to normal, and it's not often you'll see the floodplain feel like that. Heading into January, it's it's generally sort of later, Jan into February, so um, certainly early, yeah. So what are you doing at the moment with your cattle, um, you know, trying to manage that kind of weather? Yeah, well, it's not too bad. I mean, we mustered everything out off the floodplain early because we had sort of some of that early storm rain and some runoff into there, so we're sort of well ahead of the curve there, but um, we are just cleaning up a few tails and bits and pieces there, but cattle are up on the high country just enjoying the green grass, I think, but I'm sure that they'll be happy when it stops raining for a few days as well. Yeah, have you had any losses associated with the weather? No, no, not at all. I'm well in front of that, and we had a beautiful start to the season down there with good rain through October and November, so cattle naturally up on the high areas and, and in really good nutrition, so no, it's excellent at the moment. Yeah, that's really good news to hear. Um, we've we've officially gone into January. How would you rate 2022, you know, compared to the last few years that you've been at AACO? Incredible season, really. We're coming off the back of four or five really dry ones and certainly down on the Barkley was a pretty good season on the southern Barkley anyway last year. Got a little bit lighter as you went north and it's been quite dry in the Vic River. But in general, if you look at the rain we've had across the whole expanse of our properties and right into our Queensland properties, it's tremendous. So, yeah, we're, we're well ahead of where we've been the last three or four years. That must be a good feeling. Yeah, it's a great feeling, yeah. yeah hopefully it'll kick the cattle market a little bit and, um, yeah, we'll be laughing. What are you hoping for from 2023? Any, any big expectations? 
Oh, I don't think so. It'd just be nice from a seasonal perspective, really. We haven't had a long, long sort of extended wet for a very long time, so it'd be nice if we could get a little bit of sunlight now, dry the country out, and then come back through in in the end of January, February, March, and extend right out to Easter if it could, which would be great for the property. So, yeah, no, nothing too out of the ordinary, but just hoping the season continues. Michael Johnson is the Head of Pastoral Operations for AA Co, LaBelle Down Station. He was speaking to Michelle Stanley. And back here in WA, you were hearing earlier from Phil Hams at GoGo Station in the central Kimberley. He's flooded in and enjoying some huge falls there. And I see there is some amazing vision on social media, particularly Twitter, just showing how much water is flowing through the mighty Fitzroy River. If you're based in the north uh, and if you've had big rain at your place, you can always send me pictures or video through to 0448 922604. And, of course, you'll hear what's causing these extreme wet conditions and uh, what you can expect from the skies in the next few days when I catch up with the Bureau at a half past 12. Now, you might have heard about people getting sick in WA in the last couple of days from eating Cukes baby cucumbers produced in South Australia. Now, WA Health has been urging people not to consume any Cukes branded cucumbers bought during December after 19 cases of salmonella poisoning were reported. Now, we tried to get an interview on this, but haven't heard back from the South Australian company involved, Perfection Fresh. But we did get a statement from South Australian Health. Uh, It's been confirmed that they are assisting investigations into the potential presence of salmonella in those cukes following this outbreak. And a spokesperson said there has been no confirmation of the presence of salmonella in the product and the samples collected by the business during this investigation so far. It hasn't been detected. Uh, SA Health also says it's working with Perfection Fresh to establish the root cause of potential contamination, including the possibility of it occurring during transportation to Western Australia and it says it's collected several samples of current product from retail stores for testing with test results expected to be available later this week so that should provide some answers and the spokesperson also says that suspected batches identified in this West Australian outbreak should no longer be available in the marketplace and you too can read the latest on the ABC News website by searching ABC News Baby Cucumber and Contamination. The WA Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. 23 past 12 on the Country Hour. Soon you're off to get an update from the Bureau and then Jackson Worthington will join me in the studio with all the latest bushfire and fire ban information. But first, an East Coast beekeeper is calling for movement restrictions in, to be put in place to halt the spread of varroa mite to be lifted. Tough biosecurity rules were put in place in New South Wales in June when varroa mite was first detected in the state, preventing the movement of beehives in high-risk areas. Victorian beekeeper Peter McDonald says it's been crippling the industry and it's time for change. It's got quite a large impact, really, especially because we've come through probably one of the worst starts to a beekeeping year that I can remember, and my mother as well. We go back a fair way. Just that cold, wet spring coupled with the floods. We've had a terrible year, and Varroa being found up in Newcastle, New South Wales in June, and the consequent restrictions, and especially the border closures, has really compounded the difficulties we've had. So it's uh, had a dramatic impact on both the bees and the beekeepers. Okay, so even if we didn't have this Varroa outbreak and this subsequent and long-lasting border closure, 
you you would have had a shocker year anyway. Oh, absolutely. The cold and the wet, and coupled with the floods, we would have had a terrible year. It's provided a lot of difficulties, and especially for bees in New South Wales, and, and quite a lot of Victorian beekeepers like myself, we use that southern riverina, southern and western riverina area of New South Wales quite extensively, especially in springtime. There's been beehive losses through floods. There's been beehives that, like, we had bees we just couldn't get to for two months through the peak of the year and couldn't manage them. So their health has gone backwards as flowers have gone off and, and sitting in water. So it's been pretty terrible. And the, and the cold has just meant that there's been very little honey produced. So the bees, their health's taken a real hit. And, of course, we are like any other farmer and, and the bees are our babies. And um, we get very concerned when their health goes bad too. So it's had a fair toll on us. And border restrictions or the, or the ban on bees coming back from New South Wales and Victoria and the coupled with the floods has meant we've had very limited options as where we could take the bees. So, so some of them we just haven't been able to move and they've been in very poor conditions and so it's been really hard. And if you can't get those beehives and those bees to areas where there is plenty of pollen on offer and as we move into next year and as, as it gets cooler and then into winter... What's that going to mean for their food stores and for their health? This next six months, so coming from January through towards winter, it's a critical period. It's always, every year is a critical period for, for bees and beekeepers. We've got to make sure that the bees have, have good access to pollen and good access to honey to put stores of food on through winter. And if we can't prepare them right for winter, then they'll be, they'll be in poor condition going into winter and consequently they'll be very poor in terms of health when they come out of winter. And that's, that has a wider impact for Victoria as a whole because once we come out and into spring, that's when the peak pollination period is and, and we need heaps of healthy bees to, to start pollinating crops from August onwards. Almonds are the first pollination crop that comes off the rack for Victoria. They start in August and we need good bees by August. That means we've got to spend the next six months preparing our bees and making them as healthy as possible. So you're calling for that border closure to be lifted imminently? Oh, absolutely. New South Wales have come out and declared wider New South Wales is free of varroa. There's a little bit of flour and a little bit of honey now in the areas where the floods have passed through, like specifically the River Redgum and the Black Boxes. So where it's already passed through and the flood levels have gone down, we can get in close to those trees and get some pollen and honey. That's going to be gone by the end of January. So we need access to more flowers from the end of January onwards, and there will be more flowers here in Victoria. Our grey box and red stringy bark trees especially will be flowering around that time, and we need that. That is essential for us to, to keep the bees healthy and also potentially generate a little bit of income and, and sort of make up some of the losses that, that we've all had through this, this past terrible spring. So we, we would like the Victorian government to actually decide to allow us to bring bees back from New South Wales so we can ensure they're healthy going into winter and for the pollination season next year. And throughout this, the duration of the outbreak, you and others have been working with Agriculture Victoria and I, I suppose supportive of what they've done maybe to this point, but what, what are they saying to you now? We're absolutely supportive of Agricultural Victoria's efforts and the New South Wales DPI, the honeybee industry, and my family in particular have been working really closely with all levels of government to come up with this plan for over 20 years. So we've worked really hard. We agree with the response plan. We're, we're fully supportive, but it's reached a point where 
where it's contained to the Newcastle area, the Varroa mite, and they're still finding little odd little pockets of Varroa in one or two hives, but it's contained there and the wider industry needs to move. We're a mobile industry. Bees are a flying insect. They don't care about rivers. They don't care about lines on the map. And, and the forests and the flowers are on both sides of the river. Every year we cross borders and we need to be able to do that again. Otherwise, we're going to be yeah, dramatically hit and, and the beekeeping industry as a whole and the flow-on effects for pollination-dependent industries will be large. Central Victorian beekeeper Peter McDonald speaking with Angus Verley. And if you're a beekeeper in WA, how are you feeling? Do you support movement restrictions being lifted or are you keen to say them, see them stay in place to try and prevent varroa reaching WA? Have you already started putting your own safeguards in place? You can let me know. The number is 0448 it's just gone half past 12 and no news headlines today. Uh, so it's straight to the Bureau and Angeline Prasad is today's duty forecaster. Angeline, Happy New Year to you. Let's um, head to the north where there's a bit of moisture around. What's the situation? Uh, good afternoon, Jess. Happy New Year to you as well. Thank you. Um, there's a lot of moisture up in the north. We've seen some incredible rainfall totals in the last 24 hours across central and central parts of the Kimberley. We generally saw scattered falls between 100 to 200, and there are a few places that got above 200. And the highest was at Diamond Gorge uh, to the northwest of uh, Bud Halls Creek, about 356 millimeters, and that's just rainfall in a day. That's so, a lot. And that, yeah, it's it's a it's a hell of a lot of rainfall. Um, so that's due to uh, ex-tropical cyclone Ella, Ellie that has become slow moving over the central Kimberley, um, and it's it it is intensifying over land, which is why we've seen this rather huge rainfall totals in the last 24 hours. Now, it is expected to slowly move uh, towards the southwest coast of the Kimberley over the next couple of days. So. Um, if it continues that slow westward track, it's most likely going to be located close to Broome um, on Wednesday. So it, it, the most likely scenario is that it will remain over land, so just stay inland of the coast. Um, but that heavy rainfall that has happened over central Kimberley is going to slowly shift west with the system. So for Broome, for example, we do expect heavy falls to start developing from tomorrow. And if ex-tropical cyclone Ellie becomes slow-moving near Broome on Wednesday, Wednesday or Thursday, and then we could see some really intense rainfall uh, through that region. So impacts include, obviously, um, there's, there's ongoing flooding. Uh, uh, Fitzroy is in major flooding. And there's also a flood warning out for the West Kimberley uh, rivers. Um, so, And there's also a severe weather warning that is covering those heavy to intense rainfalls and uh, damaging wind gusts. Now, at this stage, um, the risk of ex-cyclone uh, alley moving back over water and redeveloping into a tropical cyclone is low to moderate, so low on Wednesday. However, on Thursday and Friday, there is that risk that it may pop over water and potentially develop into a Category 1 system. But at this stage, the risk is is easing. So the most likely scenario is that it'll stay over land and then curve, uh, do a U-turn and curve back uh, over southern Kimberley and into the interior um, towards the end of the week. Okay. So these impacts are the flooding, the heavy to intense rainfall and potentially damaging wind gusts are likely to continue until at least Friday. 
uh, and may continue into the weekend uh, through inland parts of the northeast. So it's it's a fairly prolonged event, um, and uh, the major impacts will be floods uh, from this system. And if it does develop into a tropical cyclone um, later in the week, then we could see uh, damaging winds, uh, sustained damaging winds uh, on um, on the southwest coast of the Kimberley and potentially the 80 Mile Beach. Okay. So what's the picture across the rest of the northern and eastern forecast districts, Angeline? Um, so uh, the heavy falls are concentrated through the Kimberley region, but uh, later in the week, if the system does do a U-turn and move south, then potentially the northern parts of the Pilbara and the interior may get heavy falls as well. Now, across the south of the state, uh, there is a firm ridge that is building uh, uh, near the south coast of the state, so that is going to direct hot to very hot, very dry and easterly, so windy uh, conditions across the southern half of the state uh, until Friday at least. So we are looking at heat wave conditions. So currently there is a heat wave warning out um, for um, for the uh, Western Pilbara, the Gascoigne and Central Districts and as that hot uh, and very hot easterly flow persists, we're going to see these heat wave conditions extend all the way down the west coast to the to the southwest capes uh, middle of the week. So we're going to see fairly elevated temperatures uh, across the southwest land division this week and also very windy conditions. Now those hot and uh, windy conditions are going to um, impact our fire weather as well. So we are looking at elevated fire dangers across much of the southern half of the state uh, until Friday at least. We are looking at uh, Generally high, but there will be areas of extreme. So, for example, today we have got a uh, fire weather warning out over a fairly extensive uh, district. So, we've got uh, we're expecting extreme fire dangers across the Central West, Ashburton, South Interior, Swan, Geogra- Geograph, Brockman, Mortlock, Karun, and Avon fire weather districts. And this sort of extreme pockets of extreme fire dangers is going to continue at least till Friday. Okay, and so you mentioned a few warnings there. So can you just give us a wrap-up of from north to south of what warnings are in place this afternoon? Sure. So across the north, there is the severe weather warning for the Kimberley district, and uh, this is the severe weather warning is for intense rainfall and damaging winds, and that's likely to continue over the next several days. Uh, we have also got a a major flood warning for the Fitzroy River, a flood warning for the West Kimberley district, um, the flood watch for the north and east Kimberley catchments has been finalised today. We are still expecting rainfall through the north and east Kimberley, but they're not likely to lead to uh, to a flooding event. Um, and um, there's also, um, uh, we have got gale warnings out for the north Kimberley coast, and that's due to a very strong monsoonal flow that's ex- that's feeding into ex-tropical cyclone alley. So gale wind warning for the north Kimberley coast. There's also strong wind warning for the west Kimberley coast, Pilbara coast, uh, and the Ningaloo coast. Now, across the south, um, we have got the heat wave warning out for the Pilbara, Gascoigne and Central Districts and there's also the fire weather warning out for um, Central West, uh, Ashburton, South Interior, Swan, Geograph, Brockman, Mortlock, Karun and Avon. So yeah, quite a few warnings. Uh, and we've also got strong warning across uh, the West Coast um, all the way down to the Lewin Coast um, and also... Um, there's gale warning for the Geraldton coast as well. Okay, well, thank you so much for that, Angeline. You have a great afternoon. You too. Bye-bye. ABC Radio, emergency information. 
SBS uh, with the latest bushfire information. Jackson Worthington is here. Jackson, what's the latest? Good afternoon, Jess. Uh, so this is just an update on the Bushfire Watch and Act warning for people in and around the Coolmabidjup town site in the Shire of Esperance. That's to the north of the South Coast Highway. There's a possible threat from this fire which started near the intersection of South Coast Highway and Coolmabidjup Road. A wind change is expected shortly, uh, which may result in the fire moving in a northwesterly direction towards the Coolmabidjup town site. Uh, if you are not prepared or you plan is to leave, then leave now if the way is clear. If you plan to stay and actively defend, do not rely on Maine's water pressure as it may be affected. You need to be patrolling your property to put out spot fires. Uh, the bushfire is moving slowly in a northerly direction. At the moment, it's contained and controlled, but, bush, uh, but firefighters are expecting the wind to change from a northerly to northwesterly, and this means the town site of Coolmabidjup may be threatened by the fire. Uh, some roads may be closed, and there are speed restrictions on the South Coast Highway. You can keep up to date with uh, a map of the warning area and other changes on the Emergency WA website, or you can call D on 133337. Uh, so just repeating, there's a Bushfire Watching Act warning for Coolmabidjup town site in the Shire of Esperance. And of course, stay tuned to ABC Radio because we will provi- be providing you with updates throughout this afternoon. Um, Jackson, uh, so a big fire ban list today. What's the deal? T- what's the deal? Uh, yes, so there's lots of total fire bans today. Um, so in the Pilbara, the Shire of Ashburton, in the Midwest, Gascoigne, Carnama, Chapman Valley, Carew, Dan Darrigan, Geraldton, Irwin, Minanu, Morrowa, uh, Mora, Northampton, Perengery, Three Springs and Victoria Plains. In the Perth metropolitan area, Armadale, Chittering, Gingin, Gosnells, Kalamunda, Mundaring, Serpentine, Jarradale and Swan. Uh, in the Goldfields Midlands regions, Beverly, Bruce Rock, Cunderdon, Dalwallanew, Dowran, Gamaling, Calabaran, Corder, Laverton, Menzies, Meriden, Mount Marshall, Muckenbuden, Narrambeen, Northam, uh, Nungarran, Querading, Tamman, 2J, Training, Wongan Balladu, Westonia, Wildcatcham, Yilgarn and York. Quite the list. I'll give you a break. Uh, in the southwest region, Bunbury, Capel, Collie, Dardanup, Harvey, Murray and Waruna. And in the great southern region today, Boddington, Brookton, Corrigan, Cubaling, Condinan, Coolan, Narragin, Pingerley, Wagen, Wandering, West Arthur, Wickerpen, Williams and Wooden Nilling. And at these times you must not light or maintain or use a fire in the open air or carry out any activity that could start a fire. And this includes um, open fires for the purpose of cooking, camping or outdoor entertainment. You know the deal. No hot work such as metalwork, grinding, welding, gas cutting, not allowed. Uh, off-road activities, so uh, using a four-wheel drive, quad bike, motorbike, bobcat or similar vehicle except for agricultural purposes or by industry and business if regulatory conditions are met. Uh, and there are a few harvest and vehicle movement bans in place this afternoon, Jackson. Uh, yeah, there, so there are a couple. So one is in place for Kanama, one for Karoo, uh, one for 
Irwin and one for Meriden. Thank you so much for that, Jackson. And of course, if a harvest and vehicle movement ban has been imposed by your local government, off-road activity for agricultural or business and industry, including harvesting, is banned. Uh, exceptions can be made for essential services. For a full list of activities that can or can't be carried out during a total fire ban or a harvest ban, again, just go to www.dfes.wa.gov.au slash total fire bans or get in contact with your local government area. And now, time to have a look at the rainfall totals for the last 72 hours to 9 o'clock this morning. Yes, very wet in the Kimberley, as you've been hearing, and there is really, as I mentioned, some amazing vision of the mighty Fitzroy River on Twitter. So given this massive wet season totals, um, I'll only read out the headline figures today, over 100 mils. So in the Kimberley, Bedford Downs airstrip, 122. Campbellan, 160. 168 for Curtin Aero. Debessa, 111. 99 for Derby Aero. We'll sneak that one in, even though it comes under the 100 mil mark. Uh, Faraway Bay, 123 mils. 218 for Fitzroy Crossing Aero. Fossil Downs, 300 mils there. 314 at Gibb River. Columbaroo, 152. Kimberley Downs, 261. Lansdowne, 134 mils. Leopold Downs, 329 mils. Huge. Lombardina Aero, 106. Margaret River Airstrip, 146. Marion Downs, 250 mils there. Mount Amherst, 154. Mount Barnett, 342. Mount Krause, 192. Mount Winifred, 305. Murata, 104 mils there. Napier Downs, 318 Nicholson, 114, and Old Mornington Homestead, 337. And Siddons Creek, a whopping 347 mils for the last 72 hours to 9 o'clock. Sturt Creek, 128, uh, 134 for Theda. Truscott, 154. Uh, Udiala, 152. 334 mils for Winjana Gorge. Yampi Sound, 185. And Yalumbu, 20. Uh, no, 233. Uh, and only a small totals in the Pilbara, just Yarry, nine mils there and nothing to report for the Gascoigne, Interior, Eucla or the Islands and nothing to report across the Southwest Land Division other than a few very small falls across the Southern Coastal District, but nothing over a mil. You're listening to the WA Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. And yes, as you've been hearing, the weather is wet and wild in the north at the moment and it's a pretty nerve-wracking time for fruit growers in the region, particularly given the looming threat cyclones pose. The Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development is hoping trellising trials underway in Carnarvon and Kununurra could provide vital information about how to best protect orchards in both regions. Deepherd's tropical fruit research scientist Tara Slaven is working on the Kimberley trial where jackfruit is being grown under various trellis models and she's confident trellising could provide more than just structural support to orchards. Trellising provides a few different benefits. In terms of the cyclones, yes, it's that physical structure to help anchor the tree to the ground so it doesn't rip out and the branches aren't broken off. But there are other advantages in terms of management as well because you've got a more open canopy, you get better spray penetration, so better disease and insect control. Um, it's easier to harvest generally because it is a more open canopy and it's, it's more horizontal and it opens up opportunities for mechanisation in terms of harvesting. 
You've been here for almost two decades. Have you seen the damage that sort of cyclonic weather can do to crops here in the Ord? Well, I suppose in some ways I I got here just after some of the worst of it. Bananas are particularly susceptible to it and um, they, they'd had some bad storms come through then. Not that trellising really suits bananas, but we are a bit more inland here, so we, we're not as subject to cyclones like they are on the coast in Queensland or even down in Carnarvon, but we do get some really intense storm cells that come through and and can do a lot of local damage so it's as much an insurance policy as anything. For those who don't know what a trellis is can you explain what it looks like and the different types of trellising that you're doing here at at the department in Kamnara? So trellising is poles in between the trees and then wires strained between the poles the poles can be concrete or pine or we in the Kimberley use steel because of our termites. There's basically two different types of trellising, I suppose. It's either uh, angling, so more vertical type um, branching, or horizontal branching. But we're going more for the angled, more vertical type just to protect them from the sun. And what are you finding so far with the with the trial? planted in February what's what's happening with the trees so far well I'm pretty happy with how they've established but I was most concerned at first to protect them from wallabies luckily we've got lots of green grass and everything and the wallabies on our site haven't been very interested um, but the shade that we're using has also been very important in protecting the young trees and it's really helped them establish that at that stage where they're not they don't have enough canopy yet to provide their own shade. Mm-hmm. You're trialling jackfruit here. Why jackfruit? Well, jackfruit, it's a model crop, but it is also identified by AgriFutures as an emerging crop that has a potential value of about $10 million a year. Wow, okay. And could this trial, this information that you get from this trial be relevant to other crops as well? Oh, yes, definitely. Other crops like um, custard apple or any tropical crop... And so what does success look like in this trial? Success looks like a tree that's healthy, so it's got lovely green leaves, there's no burn on the trunk, um, it's, it's a thriving tree but it's also yielding well. So it's, it's protected enough not to be sunburnt, not the, the tree's not sunburnt, the fruit's not sunburnt, it's yielding well. We'll start getting some results next year when we start trellising the trees they're actually shaping the canopies but it will still be a few years before we get some yield results and so good yields it will be what you're looking for yeah so good size good number um yeah good quality so i, I think that um having that more open canopy should really help with the quality as well because i think they, they can be a bit susceptible to rots and if, if they're in the dense um, humid canopy that really sort of it's the ideal environment for rots. Deeper tropical fruit research scientist Taris Laven with Stephanie Sinclair she was speaking about trellising trials being run at 
Kununurra and Carnarvon growing crops like jackfruit. So better management outcomes, better disease and insect control and easier harvest, but also looking into the benefits in terms of cyclone risk mitigation as well. 12 to 1 on the Country Hour. And a New South Wales company is converting diesel prime movers to electric and trialling seven trucks involved in agriculture, mining and food distribution. Janus Electric on the Central Coast has orders for 130 conversions from companies all over Australia and says the economics stack up. CEO Lex Forsyth told David Clawton they can travel around 500 kilometres, take four minutes to recharge and the running cost is less than a quarter of a conventional diesel truck. We're taking up to 10-year-old prime movers and converting them from uh, diesel to electric. So we're taking Kenworths, Max, Western Stars, Freightliners, Volvos and and converting them from a diesel prime mover to uh, electric and then putting on our exchangeable battery technology. So that's starting to heat up a bit, yeah? Yeah, look, we've got a lot of interest. I think a lot of fleet operators are wanting to embrace the technology and move forward because there's big operational savings in in going to electric and and getting away from high volatile diesel prices. We have got a couple of regional carriers around um, Mount Gambier and Port Augusta that are looking at it and some agricultural carriers that are starting to look at it from um, fixed operations that are typically running to feedlots or running from grain board to, to port, depending on the distance that they're, they're looking at covering. We've converted seven trucks so far. We've got orders there for about another 130. One will be carting milk, the other is carting sand and gravel, and the other one is doing cement. And then we've got one going into a logging application and then one going into a mining application hauling copper concentrate uh, for a project that we're doing with Oz Minerals and Cube called Vision Electric. And then we've got some uh, some going to Melbourne, uh, going into fridge vans for one of our partners down there, Newcold, that will be um, carrying uh, different frozen goods from producers to DC and then DC into a um, the supermarket DCs. That's where we've, we've seen some of that and also in the mining space in some of their long haul routes where they're not running a, um, a dump truck but they might be running a quad road train or a, or a, a power trailer combination. I mean, one of the constraints that farmers often talk about is, um, you know, the lack of charging points around the countryside. Is that something that can be solved? Yeah, look, we, we build our own charge stations as well. We, we understand the, the pressures of charging points and this application for electric vehicles, I, I don't believe electric vehicles are going to suit a, a livestock carrier or a, um, a carrier in, in far western Queensland or in, in outback Australia because the reality of it is is there's a tyranny of distance and when you when you look at the duty cycles of some of those vehicles they're not utilized completely the way that vehicles in the capital cities are and in line hall, prominent line hall routes uh, i do think that you know th- there is going to be a need uh, for some diesel prime movers in these rural applications because it, it doesn't make sense to go and put a heap of charging infrastructure in the middle of australia or you know you, you're not going to get pastoralist companies putting charging stations in there to recharge livestock trucks. That, that's just not going to be practical. But in applications where you're, you know, for a farmer who has trucks operating on their farm, there's no reason why you couldn't put a solar system in one of our charge stations there on their farm and have any of the trucks that are working within the property running on electric. It would reduce maintenance costs and running costs significantly. And they've got the beauty of being able to have a, a backup power system for their, for their properties as well at the same time. Yeah, the battery can, can be a multi-purpose type thing. What about range? Yeah. What are you seeing in terms of range for these vehicles? Look, we're, we're seeing between four to 600 kilometres, depending on what the vehicle's towing. Um, obviously, single trailer applications are a little bit higher, but anywhere between that four to 600 kilometres and the regenerative braking that's a standard feature 
depending on the topography, you're harvesting that energy back into the battery. So that's that's what we're seeing as a, as, a, as range indications at the moment. And the cost of filling up your tank with diesel, that's got prohibitively expensive, as you mentioned earlier. What would it cost to recharge electrically? Oh, I think if you look at if you look at it as a cents per kilometre basis, uh, typically you, you're seeing around uh, diesels costing most operators. Typically, most applications around that a dollar to a dollar fifteen a kilometre to operate. Going to electric, you're looking at around that forty to forty to sixty cents, depending on where you where you're buying your power. So, a farmer's right then that this is going to be, as you were saying, limited application in the bush, or do you think long term? It, it could could eventually be the way of the future, electric vehicles on farms. I, th- I definitely think electric vehicles are the way of the future. What, what we need is advancements in the battery cell chemistry. We're, we're working with one of our, our cell providers who's a partner in, of our business, and we've got a new chemistry coming that we should see middle of next year, which is a, a lithium sulfur chemistry. That will double our double our range. So all of a sudden, our batteries will go from doing four to six hundred, going to eight to twelve hundred kilometres out of a battery charge. That's the game changer. The the big thing that we see is that you know as battery cell technology develops and we get better energy density out of solid state and these other chemistries that are being developed at the moment, it, it, the reason why we've gone with an exchangeable battery solution is so that the, the, the operator can get that technology as soon as it becomes economically viable and in manufacture, rather than buying a fixed battery asset and that's fixed to the vehicle we're looking at it and going well we've got to be able to move with the technology and that's where the technology developments are coming is in battery cell technology just one last question going back on the performance stuff if i put a an electric motor in one of my machines what how would it perform is it is it better or, or worse when it comes to you know heavy heavy moving Oh, look, I, I think it, we're, we're, the feedback that we get is the drivers find it unbelievable to drive because they are the, the torque and the availability of immediate torque is there. Like we're, we're going to have some of the highest powered electric trucks in the world at 720 horsepower. Um, we're about to, about to deliver uh, two. One's going under a triple road train operating at 150 tonne and one's going under a, a B-double operating at about 68 and a half tonne. So, you know, this this fallacy of electric vehicles not being able to shift and tow the loads comfortably, it, it's not it's not accurate. The the performance of electric motors is is far superior to that of a diesel, just through the through the um, flat torque curve that is in an electric motor. So the next time your, your diesel motor <laughs> needs replacing, think electric, you reckon? Uh, definitely. Uh, look, I, I, I've been around the transport industry all my life. My family's had a long association with, with trucking right throughout Australia with FH and, and other transport businesses that we've been involved in over the last 40 odd years as, as, a, as a family. And, um, you know, I, I, um, I, I've focused solely on electrification now because I, I can see the I can see the return in it for the fleet operator. I can see the benefit for the environment. Uh, I can see the benefit for the communities of what we can do with with the electrification of assets. And I also look at it from a part of our country. We we've got the ability to be energy secure and energy so, have energy sovereignty just through our access to the renewable energy that we do have here in Australia. We have an abundance of renewable energy that we can utilise better. And by electrifying our transport fleets and and our agriculture and our mining. We, we then start to alleviate our needs to import so much diesel and, and petroleum products from overshore, uh, from offshore. You know, we import 95% of all our fuel is imported into this country. There's only ever around 7 to 12 days of fuel in stock in the country. Anyone that says there's any more hasn't done the numbers. The reality of it is, is that 
you know, we always are constantly having diesel shortages and diesel allocations because of shipping and there's a lack of terminal storage in the country to hold the amount of diesel that we require to keep operating. So, you know, that is a risk for our, our, our economy and it's also a massive burden on our economy on, on what we are importing into the country in fuel stocks. Lex Forsyth from Janus Electric speaking to David Clawton. Given most conventional tractors are between five and 600 horsepower, 720 horsepower for a prime mover sounds pretty promising. Uh, Marty has texted in to say, so when these trucks go up in flames, not if, but when, are they, they still classed as environmentally friendly? Marty says, I'll hang up the keys the day I'm expected to drive one of these. You two can have your say in the last few minutes of the show. The number is 0448 922 And there's no Mouche cattle sale today. I'll have the results of the first sale for you next Monday, just a few minutes away from the news. But before you head there, school holidays may be in full swing, but for a lot of farm kids around WA, the work definitely hasn't stopped. Louis Harrington knows all about that. The 15-year-old jumped behind the wheel of his dad's header to help out with harvest near Darkin, about 200 kilometres southeast of Perth. Anthony Pants here hopped in for a ride with Louis, who was under the supervision of Dad, Tim. Pretty privileged, I guess, being able to do this all the time. Is it stressful? It looks kind of stressful. I mean, obviously, you got it's quite computerised, but uh, stuff can still go wrong. How do you feel about it? Uh pretty comfortable. It's just the same all the time, really. For a lot of kids, I guess it's stressful enough learning how to drive a car. What was it like learning how to drive something this big? Uh, it was pretty straightforward. It's just don't mess up. <laughs> Do you know what this machine's worth? Close to, uh, yeah, around a mil, probably. A bit more than that, maybe. Now, we're out in Darkin. Uh, it's obviously a farming community here. Uh, it's school holidays, though, and uh, this is what you're doing, driving up and down all day. Uh, a lot of your friends doing the same thing? Yep, pretty much. I mean, would you say it's exciting? Oh, yeah. Pretty good way to spend the holidays? Yep. It's the best way to spend school holidays. Talk us through what what's actually happening here. I'm going around the bush, so I've got to make sure I'm not going to hit any rocks on the bush, in the bush and keeping them in the front in the crop. Looking out forward is just making sure I've got no rocks or sticks or I'm cutting it at the right height and I'm not blocking the front up is why I'm looking ahead. So as much as everything is computerised, stuff can still go wrong, really? Yeah, there's always stuff that can go wrong with anything. So. Can I ask you if you've ever had anything go wrong? Or? I have not had anything go wrong in the header, but when I've driven other machinery, yeah, I've had a lot of things go wrong. Oh, well, that's how we learn, isn't it, by mistake? Yep. Yeah. So what's the plan for you after this, uh, after these school holidays? Go away to a ag school, learn a bit more there and just keep farming. 15-year-old Louis Harrington from Dark and ending that report from Anthony Pansia. Don't stuff up. That was the advice from Dad. Uh, I've definitely heard that before, uh, sometimes in a bit of a raised voice when I do break things down. Uh, that's almost it from me. Thank you so much for tuning in for the first Country Hour of 2023. Uh, remember that for more rural news anytime, you can head on over to the ABC Rural website. That's abc.net.au slash rural. Or you can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter and Facebook. I'll catch you again tomorrow from midday. We can do it all over again and have some fun. It's news time now. One o'clock.